Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Northfield Podcast Network. What you're about to listen to is an audio resource that we are hosting here on the Northfield Podcast Network. It is my dad, um, Ed Gordon. He was the pastor at Trinity Baptist Church for close to 35 years. And he passed away in December of 2021. And we have gotten access to almost 30 years of sermons that were on cassette. And we are digitizing them and we're putting them into an audio format and placing them here on the Northfield Podcast Network. So they're going to be engraved in MP3 format for everybody to listen to. And man, praying that God uses my dad's ministry the way it worked in my heart and my life to minister to thousands of people, millions of people around the world um, for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. So we pray that this audio resource blesses you. If you want to find out more about the Northfield Podcast Network, you can go to my website, go to calebgordon.org. Blessings. Hope your Bible's with you today because you're going to need them. I can't think of a better time to share this little message this morning than on Christmas Day. Let me just say that as we come to this place to, to worship today, I, I want to begin with this statement, and then we'll, through the, through the study this morning, we'll kind of clarify the point. And that is that we're in danger of losing Christmas if we've not already lost it. We really are. We're in danger of, of losing Christmas if it's not gone already. And over the years, there's been a subtle but sure erosion of the meaning of Christmas and the purpose of Christmas. That is, there's been a sure erosion that's been eating away at the foundation of Christmas for a long, long time. And if any vestige of Christmas remains, it is only today in the celebrating of human values and those human values of peace and goodwill Brotherhood, kindness, those are the things that still, that are, if there's any vestige of Christmas that remains, that's all that's left of Christmas. Now, we've come to a place in celebrating Christmas where we put everything on hold while we gather our families together and give gifts one to another. And after the exchange of gifts and, and uh, the giving of the gifts, the question remains, do these things in the exchanging of gifts, do they capture the real essence of Christmas? And the answer to that is no, it does not. So the question, the question is, is what is Christmas really all about? Well, it is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And more particularly, it's about his divinity. Now, in our Christmas text this morning, we're going to leave here because there's a reference in Matthew chapter 1. And let's begin in verse 21. And she shall bring forth, Matthew 1, 21, <clears throat> and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, now listen carefully, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the, the Lord by the prophet by a prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child 
and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's in the Hebrew language, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, where in scripture is this said? Well, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7, and this will be our our Christmas text today is really out of Isaiah. That kind of sets the stage in the New Testament for what the prophet said, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 7. And there in chapter 7, and we'll move from 7 to 9, chapter 7 to, to chapter 9, but in chapter 7 and verse 14 it says, therefore, and this is the reference that Matthew was, was giving to us about the prophet speaking, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name and call and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. Now this is the promise of the Messiah, and uh, who came to save their people. His, his name will be Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sin. Now, listen. This is the purpose of this little Bible study this morning. And that is to reveal the genuine purpose of Christmas. And in, in that, I want to dispel, that is, I want to address, and I'm not going to address that at any length, because I want to I mainly study what the Word of God has to say about Christmas and the purpose of Christmas. But I want to dispel two um, prevailing philosophies that I believe are the root cause for the destruction of the true meaning of Christmas. The, the first philosophy that is destroying the real message of Christmas is an all-out effort to mythologize the Christmas story. Uh, that, it, that is, it's the way that the world today and some religious institutions have um, revealed uh, Christmas. And in that, they have revealed Christmas to be little more than an elaborate fable. That is, over the years, the Christmas story has been embellished with uh, all kinds of traditions, the traditions of the world to the point that most people, that is the majority of people in the world today, don't have a clue what's biblical and what's not, or what's true and what's not when it comes to the subject of Christmas. They don't understand it at all. Um, that is, Christmas has become embellished with details, some of which are biblical and some of which have been fabricated. Uh, Santa Claus, for the most part, has replaced the Savior. Uh, traditions have turned the unnumbered visitors, even in our song this morning that we sung about the three kings from the east, they've turned that into three kings. And in fact, they've not only have named and numbered them three kings, they've even today given them uh, names. Uh, popular songs today place animals in the stable and they exalt them like characters of some sort of an Aesop fable. Uh, we usually imagine the manger uh, scene and it's got snow falling. Uh, there's angels that are singing. Shirley's rightly pointed out that nowhere does it say that they're singing anywhere. Uh, th at the stable, we, and we embellish it with many worshipers there. And in fact, we include a little drummer boy, a rump-a-tump-tum. And let me just say that none of this is found in the biblical account. In the biblical, the real biblical tradition of Christmas, none of this is found. The, the magi or the wise men uh, did not visit the Lord Jesus Christ on the night of his birth. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, it says that he, they found him in his home, his house. Now, this probably was some, quite some time after his, his birth. Um, um, months after his birth. Could even be a couple of years after his birth. He, 
And these men that visited him, the Magi, were not kings. Uh, there's no indication that they were kings, nor is there any indication that there were only three of them. It doesn't say. There's three gifts offered, and I guess we just assume that in that there's only three of them that showed up at the doorstep. We don't know that. So there's much mythology that is surrounding the Christmas story that is, I believe, subverting the real, true meaning of Christmas. Secondly, I want to dispel the philosophy, another philosophy that is destroying Christmas, and that is the world's attempt to secularize Christmas. And, and what I'm referring to specifically is that the spiritual values of Christmas have really been replaced, and I think you'd say amen to this, with crass consumerism. It's a place for an amen. That is, Christmas has become the ultimate holiday for this hedonistic society in which we live. Um, you say, why do you, why do you also, well, this is the time of the year where you celebrate with drunken Christmas parties, self-indulgent, uh, uncontrolled and madcap spending, and obscene gluttony. Now, if you don't believe that, if you were in the malls uh, this last couple of weeks, or since Thanksgiving, if you were in any store in the last several weeks, um, you'd witness with graphic evidence of how our, our materialistic and our consumer-oriented society has replaced genuine Christmas. It really has. I mean, can you imagine that somehow somebody transported you from another planet to this place and he was to study what we were doing in the last couple of weeks and, you were, and he were to ask you, what is all this buying that's going on for this thing called Christmas? And then try and tie that to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What understanding would he have about that? A complete stranger. He would have no clue what you're celebrating. Absolutely none. It would mean nothing to him. As it's become to mean for most Americans today, Christmas means nothing. So not only that, but the question, not only ask a stranger what he would think about it and what it reveals, but more importantly, what does the Lord Jesus Christ himself think of all this? That is, can we rationalize all the self-indulgence and the excess by calling this a celebration of his birth? I think not. That is, he, who's, he who had to borrow a coin to illustrate a sermon, he who had to borrow a coin to pay his taxes, he who had no place to lay his head, foxes have holes, the birds of the nest, or birds of the air have a nest in which they can land and call home, but the Son of Man doesn't have such a thing. The one who was born in a stable in a, in a feeding trough. Now, let me just say, because, and I, because some of you, I, please understand, I'm not saying that as, um, as, as Christians, as we celebrate Christmas, I, that we should somehow, this should be just some sort of a, sol, a somber, solemn, grim, religious observance, one that is absolutely and utterly devoid of cheer. I'm not saying that at all. To the contrary. Christmas should really be a time of great joy. It should be a celebration of tremendous joy and gladness as opposed to the manifested sentiment and, and of, of, uh, of spending and the wild revelry that, that characterizes the way the world observes Christmas. That is, that, that true joy comes from a realization of what Christmas is really all about and knowing the one whose birth we celebrate. So in, this, in the remaining few moments, let me just share with you um, that we might return and never leave the biblical perspective of a genuine Christmas. 
Now, let me just say that the Christmas story in the Bible begins earlier than you might expect. That is several hundred years earlier. That is one Old Testament prophet after another promised a coming savior. That is the Messiah, the anointed one who would redeem the people of God. That is the centerpiece of, Christian, of Christmas and the Christian view of Christmas. And of, of all the prophecies, go to Isaiah chapter nine, because this too would be the centerpiece of all of those prophecies. Isaiah chapter nine and beginning in verse six. Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. Now this was written by the prophet Isaiah nearly 600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah is writing under divine inspiration. And, and, and here Isaiah is able to see across the centuries and he's able to give us an amazing account and picture of the Savior's birth. And he, here it is. Listen what he says. Nine and verse six. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, Isaiah in this verse reveals and promises or to us that this would be a miraculous event. That is, the birth of the, of the Son of God would be unlike any other event that this world has ever known. And here, in fact, you remember in, in chapter 7, what we just read, Isaiah 7, 14, he revealed that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin. That is, he'd be born of a woman who had never been physically intimate with a man. And this was one of the most startling details of this prophecy. And it, look at it again, just for clarity. Let's back up one uh, couple of chapters and look at verse 14, 7, 14 again. There, Therefore the Lord shall give you a sign. Now what shall the sign be? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that virgin's name we have come to see that is in retrospect. Isaiah was looking forward, we're looking backward. We know that the, the lady, the woman who conceived this child uh, by divine right was named Mary. And the name is key. That is, shall call his name Emmanuel, is, is the key, and really is, is the key to this particular verse. I mean, it reveals who he is. It is the heart. This is the heart. 714, when they say, and shall call his name Emmanuel, this is the heart of the Christmas story. And it, it literally means, it is a Hebrew word, which literally means God with us. It is a promise of incarnate deity. That's the promise that's made in 714. That the one who would be born would be God himself. A prophecy that God himself would appear as a human infant. Emmanuel, God with us. This baby who was born would be God himself in human form. And that, that is the greatest part of Christmas. Now, let me just say, if we could somehow, as a people, if we could condense all the truths of Christmas into three words, just three. That is, if we were to, if somehow we, somebody were to, can you describe for me in three words what Christmas really is? The three words would say, God 
with us. That's the true meaning of Christmas. At Christmas, we tend to focus our attitudes on the infancy of Jesus. That is, we lay out our manger scenes and we show a little cradle uh, with the baby Jesus in it. And that seems to be the focus of everyone at, at Christmas time. Well, the greatest truth of Christmas is not his infancy, not at all, but rather it is his deity. That's the focus of Christmas, is the deity. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Just jot this down. 1 Timothy 3, 16. And it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. And without controversy, that is without debate, that God was manifest in the flesh. And we should celebrate his deity, not his infancy. And that, is, that ought to mean more to us than a baby in the manger. And this is the, that is, this is the fulfillment of the promise. That is, this baby that was in that manger is the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth. And Isaiah describes in his prophecy a coming king. That is, this would be the child who would be born, and Isaiah said, would shoulder the government. And to the unsuspecting world, this prophecy of this promised Savior, that is God incarnate, whose coming would dramatically, that is, he is the one who would come and the, and the world doesn't understand, and that is as unsuspecting, this one who would come is going to dramatically and forever alter human history. Now, our Christmas text genuinely is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and I just want to kind of parse this a little bit, and then we'll, um, we'll dismiss. But there are three phrases that I want us to focus on in Isaiah 9, 6. Are you still with me? All right. Look at Isaiah, and, and, and let's start with the first one. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us, now listen, a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, this says a child, notice in the very first, first part of verse 6, for unto us a child is born. A child will be born unto us. That is, this is a statement about his humanity. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ began his life like any other human being. He began it, the Son of God began his life as an infant. Now, Isaiah doesn't, he doesn't say much, but we know from the New Testament that throughout his life, Christ experienced, that is, we know from Hebrews chapter 4, that he was in all points tempted like as we. Now, when, the, when Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and says, in all points he was tempted like as we, what do you think that means? Well, it means exactly what it says. That as a human being, he experienced every force of temptation that you do. Yet he was without sin, right? He was in every point tempted. That is, we somehow think that Christ never went through any temptation. I have news for you. He was tempted just like any other man. Now, I realize that he was devoid of an Adamic nature, and I want to confess that right up front. But he was, the, 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 the pressure of temptation, he was, the point is that he was just like any other man. He was tempted just like we throughout his life. Every, every common temptation, but he never sinned. Now, ultimately, Christ would die as all men do, right? But the death that he died was not of his own doing. That is, he didn't die for his own sin. He died for ours. He took our place. 
That is, he was bearing the sins of all of humanity and all of their guilt. And as a man, as a, as a born an infant, born a man, he felt everything we feel. He hurt like we hurt. That is, he experienced pain just exactly as we experience pain. His heart was broken over the condition of humanity. He wept like we weep. And in his death, he felt the entire weight of every sin of this world. So he was an infant. He was born a human being. But you notice also in verse 6, the second part of that, it says, a son is given, not born. Now I want to make that distinction. It doesn't say a son was born. It says a son was given. That is, the, the terminology speaks of the saviors, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, his preexistent deity. Again, we know the full truth of what Isaiah only suggests. That is, he's only making suggestions here, but we on the other side of the cross understand this. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ existed before his birth, right? That is, he already existed. That is, he's the second person. He's the, of the Godhood, he's the second person of the Trinity. He was given to us to be our savior. Now, although he existed in the form of God, I want, you to, I want to remind you from Philippians that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But remember, it says, the scripture says that he emptied himself and taking upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He, he, came, he came as an infant in his humanity, but he also came in his deity, the son of God in a human body. And the reason he came is to conquer sin and death forever. That's the purpose of his coming, to conquer sin and to conquer death. He is the perfect son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the promise of the ages, the Holy One of Israel. He is divine in nature. He is the light in darkness. He is the only, listen to me carefully, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope for this lost world. He is it. There is no other way. He is the only hope. Third thing, go back to verse six. I just want to, um, and unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now you notice the second thing, the third thing there it says is that the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government will rest on his shoulders. Now this prophecy of Isaiah, it looks beyond Christmas to a time still in the prophetic future when Christ will reign over this, this earth literally. Do you understand that one day Christ is going to come to this earth and he is going to set up his kingdom in spite of all the ACLU will do and any government on this earth? Do you understand that? Christ is going to come and set up a literal geopolitical earthly kingdom. And this, this, the, his kingdom will encompass all the governments of the world. That's what he's going to do. And um, that is in that day, the governments of the world will rest on his shoulders. Now, let me just say this about the government on his shoulders. He is going to reign as a sovereign king. That is, Christ is not going to share the kingdoms of this earth with other kings. He is going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will not subdivide his kingdom to any president or anybody else. He is going to shoulder the weight of the entire government himself. 
He's going to do that. He is going to be sovereign. That's what he's going to be over the entire world. And his kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness and peace. This is Christmas. His kingdom will be one of righteousness and peace. Now, um, in, the, in the intervening period of time, his government operates in the hearts of his people. That is, in the hearts of his people, he rules as sovereign. That is, our hearts are his kingdom. Say amen. Our lives are his kingdom. That is, for those of us who have who have recognized our sinfulness and repented of sin and trusted him as Savior and obey him, he is our king. Now, in visible form, today, he rules in the hearts of his people. Now, let me ask you a question. What are the characteristics of his kingdom? That is, what will distinguish his rule from worldly rule? Well, the names that I, that is, to understand that, that is his shouldering the earthly government, what his kingdom will be like. You're going to have to look at the names that Isaiah uses in his Christmas prophecy. And he, here he gives us four unique features that make the, the Messiah's kingdom uh, that's present in the hearts and lives of believers and in future rule that will be different from any other power on the earth. Now, let's, let's parse those and see. For those of us who know him, looking forward to that future time when he's going to set up his kingdom, what are those phrases that Isaiah uses? Well, let's look at those. The government shall be upon his shoulder, right? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, Messiah's kingdom has the answer to the world's confusion. That is, the king who is in charge of our lives as believers and one day will rule this world is called Wonderful Counselor. Now, I want you to notice and probably some of you, if you have a King James Version Bible, the words wonderful and counselor are separated by a comma. Now I know that probably some of you here that don't have a comma between them, and that's more appropriate. There should not be a comma there. That is, it should be deleted. That is, they go better together. And so, let me, let me just illustrate this way. When the Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked this earth as, as the God-man, and as you study the New Testament, you notice that when he came into contact with human beings and to people who came to him for counsel, he always knew exactly what to say, didn't he? That is, when they came to him, he never scratched his head and was confused about what he ought to say to any given situation or counsel that he should give. He knew exactly how to address those people and exactly what to do. He never backed away from it. That is, he always knew when to reach out, right? He knew exactly when to reach out. He knew exactly how to rebuke. That is, when a rebuke was necessary, he put people in their place. In fact, do you remember in the New Testament, it says, it revealed there that they, when he spoke, the people said, never did a man speak the way this man spoke in John chapter 7. That is, when they heard him speak, he said, nobody's ever spoken this way before. And that's because he is the wonderful counselor. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the source of all truth. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is Jesus that we must ultimately turn to to make sense of all of life's confusion. And when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He becomes your wonderful counselor. Amen? 
when he comes to this earth to rule and reign, he will be the wonderful counselor. Unfortunately, most people turn everywhere else for counsel except the wonderful counselor. That is, they go to psychologists, they go to psychiatrists, they go to psychoanalysts, they go to their philosophers, they go to their religions, they go to their, to their quacks, they go to their astrologers and other human advisors. But the most critical truth of all, that is the only really life-changing truth, is the truth that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to me carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ and He alone is the ultimate and only answer to all of life's confusion. He really is. Now, wouldn't you like to have a counselor who knows everything? Wouldn't you really like to have a counselor who knows absolutely everything? Well, you do. Jesus is that counselor. In fact, not only does he know everything, did you know that he knows everything about you and still loves you? Aren't you glad for that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you, listen, I don't, he knows everything there is to know about you. He know. in fact, did you know this morning he knows every need of your heart? He, he knows how to answer every one of those needs of your heart. Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ always gives wise, truthful counseling, always to those who will hear and those who will obey. If you're not willing to obey, then you're not going to hear. But in order to be over, you must be under. You must submit. Secondly, so he's the wise counselor, the wonderful counselor. You notice also this government that he talks about that's in our hearts. He is the mighty God, the mighty God. Now listen, no chaos in his kingdom. That is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is free from chaos. The king is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. What does that mean? Well, he's the all preexistent powerful one. Who, and he's the one who took creation and brought order out of chaos. Now, let me just reference a scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says that our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace and order. Remember that when he's speaking about the church and how things are to be done? That God is a God of decency and he's a God of order. He's a God of peace. Now, let me just say something. Chaos is the opposite of who he is. Chaos is the opposite of who he is. That is, he is the God of order. Now, let me, let me help you. The, the opposite word of, of chaos is the word cosmos. The word cosmos means to order. Um, um, you ladies, before you came to church today, many of you put on cosmetics. The word for cosmetics roots in the word cosmos. That is, you took chaos and put it in cosmos. That is, you took disorder and put it in order. And all the men said, oh, bunch of cowards, don't leave me hanging out here with that. I never will forget that. And and Butch came in one Sunday morning. I was sitting in my office and they were arguing over, I think it was makeup, about the wearing of makeup. And the, the question, Ann, do you remember this conversation? You do. And I don't remember which one I asked the question, but the question was, is it sinful for a woman to wear makeup? And my response was, I believe it's, for, it's sinful for some women not to. 
<laughs> I meant that. <clears throat> okay. All right. All right. Cosmos and chaos. I better stop there. But now listen, he is a God of peace and he's a God of order. And he can take the disorder of your life and put it in order. And not only can he put it in order, he has the power to create that order. Say amen. He is, he is all powerful. That is Christ the King. He, he, what he loves to do is Christ loves to step into a life of chaos and not only provide wonderful counsel, but also to do, he likes to display his divine power to bring order to that chaos in your life. In other words, he not only tells his subjects what to do as wonderful counselor, but he also is able to energize the individual to do what he is given counsel to do because he is the mighty God. He is able to, to create in you the ability to do what he commands you to do. Now, let me just say that human counsel only goes so far. It stops short at the point of power. That is, human counselors have no ability to empower someone to, to, to do right once they know right. But you put that with the Lord Jesus Christ, and only can, you tell you, can he tell you what it is that you need to do to be right, he'll empower you to be able to do it. Jesus is the sovereign master, and he is not dependent upon this world's wisdom. He is God, and because he is God, he can forgive sin, he can defeat Satan, he can liberate people from the power of evil, he can redeem them, he can answer their prayers, and he can restore their broken hearts and their broken spirits. And he can reign over a rebuilt life and bring order out of chaos. That is the mighty, that is the mighty God. Now there's another phrase, we're going to have to wrap this up, but notice in verse 6, he is called, no, the mighty God, he's called the everlasting He's called the Everlasting Father. The Everlasting Father. Now, you know what this means? It means that he is the father of eternity. Now, when we see the word, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, whenever I hear, and listen, I know that I'm a government servant, and I know that when I hear the word government, it always causes me to kind of cringe, because I think of, when I think of government, I think of, of taxes, and I think of red tape. Amen? I mean, when you think of government, you, that's what you think. But I want you to know something. Our Messiah's kingdom is not, is not like that. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to require no bureaucracy. That is, what do you mean? Well, he's not going to need any support staff. He shoulders the government by himself. Now, how can he do it? Well, he can do it because he is the eternal father. That is in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six, where we just read, it literally translates in the Hebrew language, he is the father of eternity. Now, once again, this phrase is a reference to the biblical truth that Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, let me just, I think it's important that you look there before we dismiss this morning. And I want you to keep your finger there, but I want you, want you to go to, would you please go to Hebrews chapter, quickly, go to Hebrews chapter one and look at verse 10. Because I want to make this distinction about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think some people get confused and I think it's good that you see it. Hebrews chapter one and look at verse 10. Now listen. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. 
they shall perish, but thou remainest, and, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now, do you understand when it says in verse 10, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands? Do you understand here that God the Father is speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, and it says there, in other words, according to God the Father, that is his own testimony, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ was the person of the Godhead who created time out of eternity. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who fashioned this universe in which we live. He's the one who did it. And Jesus fashioned this earth and this universe that we live in out of nothing. Now, what does that mean? Well, nothing is too difficult for the creator because he is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ to him, infinity is nothing to him? Why? Why is infinity nothing to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. Isaiah 9, 6, he is the father of eternity. He's the father of eternity. That is, Isaiah chapter 46, 10 says that he has the ability to declare the beginning from the end. That's what he has, the, he can do, that is, from the very end to the very beginning, from the beginning to the end, he has the, the ability to declare what's going to happen. He can do that. And, and listen, that is, from the very start, he tells how everything will turn out. Did you know that? That is, in this book, he tells you how everything's going to turn out. Did you know that he can even tell you the end and where you're going to wind up? <laughs> he does. Those that trust him have what kind of life? Everlasting, because he is the God of eternity. What a comfort that is to know that he is in complete and absolute and sovereign control. And did you know that he guarantees our future? You say, well, yeah, when we die, listen, I got news for you. It's even more than that. Because did you know that in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love him. Did you know that? All things work. That is from this, from the moment you receive Christ on, there's no bad thing happens to you. Did you know that? All things work together for good. He is in sovereign con control. Let me just conclude by saying, in Isaiah 9, 6, the very last phrase that describes his government in the hearts of his people and the coming kingdom that he will set up is called, they call him the Prince of Peace. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. You so say, what does that mean? There are no conflicts. That is, in Messiah's kingdom, there are no conflicts. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. Did you know that he offers peace from God? In Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, it declares that. That is, to, to all those who are recipients of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings peace to their heart. He makes peace with God. That's what he does. For all those who surrender to him, he brings the peace of God. In fact, Philippians 4, 7 says he brings that peace to those who walk with him. You know, as we hear so often at Christmas, we talk about the beginning of his earthly life. And it was revealed by angels who announced in Luke chapter 2, it says, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Did you know that there really never has been peace on this earth in the sense that we think of peace? That is, if we think of the world that we live in today, it's full of war and famine and death. 
That was all because our world is in control of sin. And the announcement of peace on earth was a proclamation. Is a proclamation to those who receive Christ as their Savior that they'll enter into peace with God. And it's really a, a two-pronged proclamation. What is it with peace, this Prince of Peace? Well, the two-pronged proclamation at Christmas is this. This peace is declared by the arrival of the only one who ultimately can bring lasting peace on earth. And I want you to know something, that one day Christ will set up his kingdom on this earth and there will be peace. Amen. There will be peace on this earth. Earthly peace. But in this time, more importantly, it's a proclamation that God's peace is revealed to men and women. And this peace that the angels declared comes from the relationship that we have with God through Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, a mediator of a covenant of peace between God and man, because the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our Messiah. So when the angels proclaimed peace on earth, they were speaking primarily of a very personal peace in its application. And it comes from a firsthand knowledge of coming into a relationship with Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace. Do you understand that? Look at verse, you still in Isaiah? Verse seven. Of the increase of his government, now listen carefully. He's called the Prince of Peace in verse six, the end. Of the increase of his kingdom, his government, the peace there shall be no end. Do you understand that? Upon the throne of David, upon the kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In other words, his perfect government and perfect peace, it's going to keep expanding in the lives and hearts of the believers and it's going to get, it's going to get gooder and gooder and better and better. And that, that's why we can say, every day with Jesus, is sweeter than the day before. It does keep getting better and better. It does keep getting gooder and gooder. That may not be good English, but it sure sounds right. That is, his perfect peace gets deeper. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. Deeper. And this is the message of Christmas in prophetic form. It is the good news of God's answer to all the confusion and all the chaos and all the complexities and all the conflicts of life. He is the wonderful counselor who's able not only to give wise counsel, but to bring order, to bring order out of confusion and to give purpose. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His shoulders are broad enough for the governments of an eternal kingdom yet compassionate enough for people just like you and me. Now he chose to be born. God the Son chose to be born as a baby. Why? So he might live in a world as Emmanuel. And we should not celebrate much his infancy as much as we should celebrate his deity. May the government of your life 
Are you listening? May the government of your life be upon his shoulders. May the government, that is, may he be the one who orders your life. And may he become to you that are here this morning the wonderful counselor. May he become to you the everlasting father. May he become to you the prince of peace. And if you don't know him as your savior, you should. He is the one who can bring order to your life. He is the purpose of Christmas. Let's don't get lost in the crass consumerism of the day in which we live. And just because the world has now gotten to the place where they've all but outlawed his name, don't let it be outlawed from your life. And as you celebrate Christmas, remember this Christmas text. Emmanuel. Aren't you glad you know him? Aren't you glad you've entered into a relationship with him? You know, I can't think of a better day to receive Christ. You know, if I weren't saved and I were here today and I'd never received Christ as my Savior, this would be a good day to do it, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful? You say, well, Brother Gordon, it's all kinds of complexities and we really don't know that he was, we don't think he was born. We're not, listen, don't get lost in the day, the 25th of December. Don't get lost in that. Don't get confused. Because the issue is him and his relationship with me, with you. Is the government on your of your life, is it on his shoulders? You say, what does that mean? It means have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Now, we're going to give an invitation this morning. I know it's Christmas Day. You say, well, it's unusual that I do this. But I'm going to do it anyway. And we're going to do it a little bit differently. Because I've asked, I've, we're going to hear, a, I think it would be a good invitation song. Because I think the angels in heaven, for those of you who are here, if you're here and you don't know Christ, and he's not the king of your life and the governor of your life, and you want to do that today, this is what the angels of heaven would certainly be singing. Would you stand with me and go right ahead, Kenny? And this is our invitation song. <laughs> 